All right, welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn. I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. And this week we're talking about possibly our favorite thing, the internet, where we live and where our show basically lives, because let's be honest, no one listens to the radio. I wanted to get this started with a discussion of like the history of the internet, really the prehistory of the internet as we know it. What do you mean by prehistory? It's hard to call what I'm going to go through entirely as just the history of the internet because the current concept we have of it is very, very, it's far from what it started as. You know, it started as a very specific thing and it has grown to be something that I don't think they envisioned it being back in the day. So that's why I call it prehistory. And again, before we start, I think it's important to make the distinction between the web and the internet. So common parlance, you use the two interchangeably, but it's, it's important for this. Um, the web in this case is what we usually see as the internet. So we see web pages, that kind of thing. That's the web. The internet, while it contains the web, is not just the web. It's a much larger group of things. So anything that's going to be sending data on the internet is the internet. Right. Anything that's using the systems of connected computers and servers, whether that's web pages or not, it can be smaller things, data services, um, voice over IP phones, that sort of stuff. That's the internet, but it's not the web. Uh, we'll talk more about the specific development of the web later, but the internet is the first. So networking itself, interconnecting computers, is pretty old as far as computer terms are concerned. Um, back to the earliest multitasking mainframes in the late 60s, you would have multiple users using one computer and you could have multiple terminals doing different things that were all connected back to a central computer via networking. But it wasn't uh, used the way we would see it today, mainly because it was one computer and really it was not, um, there was no way to interconnect multiple computers. You could have a bunch of users, but computers couldn't work together like they do now. The first time we see real interconnected networking is in the late 60s with the formation of ARPA by the Department of Defense. ARPA, known now as DARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, it was part of the, the Cold War when we were trying to outpace the Soviets technology-wise. And one of their big projects was to create a network of computers between the government and universities for research purposes. Um, this started out as something called the ARPANET on the West Coast. Their big innovation was something called packet switching, which goes back to uh, how we built the telephone networks in the United States, where if you think about your phone call, uh, back when you'd speak to an actual operator, they'd manually be plugging you in and pushing you between different switches. And there was, in effect, one continuous wire between your phone and the person you were talking to's phone. The same deal was applied to networking so that you could have multiple computers talking to each other at once over the same network. That's actually why we still call them switches today. That's telephone terminology. ARPA applied switching and they also applied something called packets to network communication. So instead of trying to send data all at once, they realized that it was much more reliable if you sliced it up and then sent those each as chunks. Isn't that why packets normally have like a certain degree of redundancy and stuff like that in them? Yeah, uh, they have three numbers associated with them. A destination, where they came from, and their number in terms of where they are in the chunk of data. So when your computer is trying to reassemble them, it can know if it's missing a packet and ask for the uh, other computer to resend them. That's really the whole point. It's redundancy. And also in later systems, it allows individual packets to take faster routes through the network 
and be assembled even though they didn't come all at the same time, and it makes the thing overall much more efficient. Uh, packets were mainly a, an innovation of a man named Paul Baran, who was part of ARPA, again, in the late 60s. And early on, the network for each different computer you wanted to talk to, every computer had to have a list of all the addresses of every other computer. Kind of like IP addresses, they weren't that uh, standardized yet, but it's the same deal. This became a problem as the network grew faster and faster. Each computer would not have an updated address and there was no automated way of getting those sent around the network. So pretty early on, Stanford, one of the universities in the network, just said, hey, we'll keep track of this. You don't have to worry about it. And they kept track of whenever new computers were added and they were the one place where you could download the list of addresses from. This is kind of like early uh, DNS, but it wasn't DNS quite yet. That didn't come around until the mid-80s. How big were these networks? Like, how many computers were on these early internet networks? Um, it's hard to tell. Early on in ARPA, it was mainly between three to four universities. And at the time, they would have had one computer, but it wasn't a computer as we think of it now. It was a mainframe that could have been serving any number of users. Over time, they grew, and as microcomputers, as they were called at the time, grew more popular, the networks grew and grew and grew in terms of their clients, but early on, it was five to six computers. Now, ARPANET was originally just for research and for the government. Uh, there was no private networks. There was no involvement with business, but that changed over time. Um, around ARPANET, there started popping up these private networks that would connect businesses who weren't necessarily there for research, but you could get like stock tickers and financial information and that kind of thing. Uh, these still weren't open to the public and they weren't the internet as we think of it, but they were following the same ideas as ARPANET. Uh, these were not allowed to interconnect with ARPANET at the time for a couple of reasons. The biggest which being that ARPANET was publicly funded and there was a no commercial uh, uses rule. And the second was that there was no standard for how to format packets. So you'd try to get packets from one network to the other and they would be effectively gibberish because the addresses weren't the same, the destinations weren't the same, and most importantly, the sequence IDs, the thing that tells you how to reassemble the packets at the other end, were not the same. So is this when they realized that things like that needed to be standardized for the internet to be expandable? Yeah. Um, Honestly, it, it worked fine until the early 80s, which is when the standardized started happening. Uh, this was pushed not just by ARPANET, but by networks like in Europe. Um, we had actually interconnected ARPANET via satellite with uh, Northern Europe at that point, uh, the British Isles and Norway, and also Hawaii. And we were realizing that this was quickly becoming an interconnected system where we needed standardization. And this is when you start seeing the protocol that's still used today, TCP slash IP. I didn't realize that that went so far back. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, it's a standard that works, so we haven't gotten rid of it. We've iterated upon it with uh, things like new versions of how to do IP addresses because we're quickly running out of them. IPv4 versus IPv5, right? V6. Yes. Yes. But, you know, it's still the same basic idea of how to send packets, of how to address them, that kind of thing. This is when interconnects started happening with private networks. Now, this is still non-commercial, but the network was growing faster and faster. And frankly, the government was getting tired of maintaining it. So what the government is maintaining is basically the networks in between. They're not handling any of the computers on the network. And the way that the DOD saw it, ARPANET had run its course. It had served its purpose. 
and they were looking for someone else to kind of pawn off that responsibility to. And the next runner-up was something called NSFNet, the National Science Foundation. Now, throughout the 80s, the NSF had been funding uh, supercomputer centers at universities throughout the country, and it was building faster and faster internet backbones to connect them. So high-speed links that could connect to what they called regional networks, uh, things like Suranet, which Auburn was a member of at the time, where you'd have the government operating the very fast links and then regional networks could handle routing between local universities and that kind of thing. This became more and more popular, especially in 1989 when two very important things happen. First of all, the non-commercial rule gets revoked. You can now have commercial access and the first ISPs start popping up. Later in the 90s, uh, there's a more formal declaration by Congress that causes a lot more ISPs to pop up, but 1989 is really the first time that we can say ISPs started happening. You've probably heard the name Tim Berners-Lee, right? Yeah, I don't know what from, but... So Tim Berners-Lee is commonly cited as the person who invented the web, and because of that distinction earlier between web and internet, people don't really know what that means. So you're telling me Al Gore didn't make the internet? No, okay, we're not even going to get into Al Gore here. There's a whole nother segment on that. But Berners-Lee, what he did was, at the time, he worked at CERN. And the internet there was really annoying to use because everything was set up like a file system in a computer. So it's structured like a tree where you'd have to go down each branch of the tree to get to where you wanted. And for small networks or for like files on your computer, that's fine. But it gets pretty annoying to have to hit the back button every time that you don't get what you want and go back up the branch of the tree to get back to go down a different branch. What Berners-Lee realized was that there was this thing called hypertext that had come up in the 60s that was basically links in documents that could send you to different parts of the document. And Berners-Lee realized that you could apply this to the internet and make it way faster to use. He also applied the relatively new DNS technology at the time, removed the requirement to have to remember people's addresses. Um, DNS was invented after people who were using email at the time had to quite literally have a map printed out of the network on their desk and specify how to route their email to go wherever they wanted instead of having to just say like, you know, mit.edu, that kind of thing. And this is where the web really starts. Berners-Lee realized that by connecting those two things together, you can make it much more user-friendly to dispense information over this. And with the commercialization of the internet, it just exploded because of how you could use it and the new things you could do with it. Now, obviously, we're pretty far removed from NSFNet. NSFNet now. It was decommissioned in 1995 as people didn't really see it as necessary anymore. Uh, private companies took over operating the backbone. Now, the backbone today is mainly uh, glass fiber connections, so really, really fast connections, generally redundant and interconnected at various sites so that there's not really a single point of failure for internet connection in the U.S. Uh, it's mostly operated by AT&T, uh, Verizon, um, CenturyLink, and Sprint. At the high level, backbones and backbone operators kind of act like your home router, just on a much bigger scale. So they receive packets, they know where they need to go, they send them to that part of the network, and then those get routed again and again and again to get where they need to be. Your local ISP just hooks into that backbone, and they do the same thing. They receive a packet, it's got an address, they know how to push it where it needs to be within their own network in order to eventually get to your house. But we'll talk more about ISPs and how they operate in just a minute. Before that, we're taking a break. 
All right, so when we come back, we'll be talking about ISPs and the monopolies that have started to form. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so you talked about how ISPs work on more of like an infrastructure level. I'm going to talk about how ISPs operate on more of like a political level, like what's what's going on between them. I have a feeling that this is something you're really mad about. A little bit. Okay, so once again, you know, we're going to be talking about the FCC while being very careful to abide by the FCC guidelines for radio. Just disclaimer, I'm going to be trying to present this information as fact. These are the. This is the information as I understand it. Don't don't get us wrong. You're allowed to lie on the radio. We're just trying not to. Exactly. So, uh, you know, an ISP is an internet service provider. I'm going to refer to it exclusively as an ISP because I don't have time to say three separate words. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like Charter, Comcast, AT and T, etc. Tons of smaller names as well. And the issue that I want to talk about is the sheer lack of like options available for most people. Technically, uh, ISPs are not necessarily a monopoly because in some areas, you know, you have uh, several companies to pick from. But in a lot of areas, your options are severely limited. So in America, uh, as of, I think, like a 2019 statistic, 27.9% of people cannot purchase internet faster than 25 megabits per second. That is the maximum internet speed available to them locally. No amount of money can change that problem. Which, to give context to that number, is slow. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not unusably slow. Like, I think I get 35 in my apartment, but it is, it's not fast. 25 megabits. Uh, Keep in mind, this is megabits, not megabytes. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at, you know, when you're downloading a file, that's going to be in megabytes. That's uh, there's eight uh, bytes or eight bits in one byte. 25 megabits is pretty slow. That is like the highest tier service available for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for a lot of use, like for professional use, that's almost unusable. If you're trying to do something that involves sending lots of data frequently. I mean, the Internet is just too slow. I mean, even with a business, if you're so if you're already limited to 25 meg speed, you're also definitely going to be limited on bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a bunch of users on your network, that's not going to cut it. Not at all. Not at all. The companies Cable One, Charter and Altus, they all hold a monopoly on over 50 percent of the area which they cover, like literally a monopoly. Uh, So 50 percent of the area that like Charter is operating in, the only option these people have for Internet service is Charter. Same for these other companies. The majority of other companies, uh, with an exception of like AT&T, I think they only have like a 3% monopoly. Most of them have like 30 to 40 to 50% monopoly in the areas that they choose to offer service. That's pretty revealing. It's showing that these companies are operating in a way where they're not treading on each other. Uh, They have their specific territory. And in that area, you know, I mean, Internet is kind of a necessity for, I'd say, about 90% of all people. It was actually, I think the UN recently declared it uncensored internet access a human right. It's certainly, I mean, it's beyond essential for most jobs. Uh, Having access to that kind of information, it's very helpful. Not to mention, I mean, it's almost a necessity for communication. What I didn't realize, so obviously in like rural areas, it's, it, it makes sense that they might not have options for a lot of different ISP providers. But actually in certain places, like specifically San Francisco, they actually have huge issues with ISP diversity. That blew my mind. I thought this was really just a rural issue. But in a lot of places, they, you know, maybe it's not a monopoly, but they have two options or three options instead of uh, there's like 15 major companies competing. The reason why this is like legal, so to speak, is these cable companies, technically, they're these areas that they have monopolies in. They're not considered monopolies because dial up is an option. Oh, 
that's no, it's not. Yeah, it, it's legally decided that uh, if these in these areas you can use a dial-up as an alternative. Therefore, it's not considered an actual monopoly. Keep in mind, dial-up would be three megabits per second if instead that, of twenty-five. That which, is maximum speed of three megabits per second. Let Let's not forget that's not just three megabits per second. That's three megabits megabits per second that drops off the farther you are from the central location of your ISP. So the farther away you are, that gets down to 1 or 0.75 or, you know, yeah. lower and lower and lower. Surprisingly, there are actually still quite a few companies that offer dial-up services simply because the infrastructure is already there. It's using telephone infrastructure to send internet data. Specifically, why hasn't this changed? Well, you talked about how, and I think in the you said in the mid-90s, there was a major change in uh, telecommunications. Mm -hmm. So the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was passed, and it was the first overhaul of telecommunications in 62 years up to that point. You had 91 out of 100 senators supporting it. Uh, it had you know bipartisan support. And the biggest change that this brought was it eliminated limits on how many radio stations and TV channels a company could own. So in addition to changing internet laws, it meant a company like Clear Channel could buy up thousands of radio stations and play their music instead of offering the more unique variety you'd get on local stations like Weagle. Listen to Weagle. So previously, there were also restrictions on and cable and broadcast companies having what's called cross ownership. It meant that a company that was broadcasting something like a news network could not also be a cable provider, or it could not also be a provider of internet infrastructure. And so this law is what led to sort of the current, all these major companies that we have today. It meant that companies like AT&T and uh, Charter and these, these they, they could expand massively without kind of stepping on each other's toes. So specifically, I want to get into why, why is this still a problem? So many of these companies are providing the information that the FCC uses to determine whether these companies are having monopolies or not. So a lot of the, uh, the information that's getting published by companies like AT&T, it's saying, like, look at all these things we're doing. We're not having a monopoly. We are rolling out services in this area and this area and this area. And recently, a, uh, a tech company in San Francisco did an independent study, and they were able to systematically prove that AT&T, in these examples, had been cherry-picking the data. Certainly, that might seem obvious, but there's definitive evidence of that now. And uh, while they haven't examined the other companies, it's safe to say that they're doing similar, or it's safe to assume they're most likely doing similar things. You might remember the current chairman of the uh, FCC, Ajit Pai. Of course. So he was appointed in 2015. And a kind of a cornerstone of his appointment was he said that the broadband market is already too competitive. Despite having 50% monopoly, you know, he thought any sort of regulation would be unnecessary at that point in time. And you might also remember him as the face of an opposition to net neutrality. And I'm not going to get into net neutrality. That's its own thing. But basically, it meant that companies like Comcast and Charter could decide how they treated data depending on what websites you're going to and what traffic is being sent. So it meant that they could give you varying internet speeds on something like Netflix versus YouTube, and they could charge you additional fees to access the higher speed internet. Ajit Pai also struck down a legislative plan recently that would have prohibited ISP providers from selling their customers' uh, browser data. The ISPs are currently allowed to do that, if you did not know. <laughs> Your browsing data is allowed to be sold. Anyway, I'm not going to defend Ajit Pai's stance on net neutrality, but I do want to briefly defend Ajit Pai uh, because... I feel like most of the most of the news that comes out about this guy, you know, it's it's predominantly negative. So his justification for stating that the ISP market is too competitive is he's comparing it to services like Google, YouTube, you have digital storefronts like Steam that for a long time had no opposition. I mean, no one 
I know uses Bing over Google. Uh, no one I know uses any of these alternatives over something like YouTube. I mean, it's just essential. People watch videos on YouTube. Uh, these websites on the internet, they have sort of a true monopoly. Uh, Google gets 85% of all searches on the internet. And that number has continued to grow as time has gone on. And so AjitPi says this is where the issue is. These are the services we need to be targeting. This is where we need to be encouraging diversity. And in regards to things like ISPs and ISP monopolies, instead we need to lower the barrier of entry as much as possible. And I kind of, uh, I understand that, that style of logic. Certainly, you know, it's not as black and white as uh, maybe it was initially made out to seem. So do you think it should be regulated differently because these are mostly free to the user services? Like most of the time when we talk about monopolies, we talk about people making choice bases on the reason that people see them as bad is because the prices can be jacked up as much as possible. But when the service is mostly free to the user, that's not really the case. Do you think that, that we should be treating them differently because, you know, consumers aren't going to Google because it's the cheapest. They're going to it because it's the easiest or like most reliable in their case. Do you think that modifies how we have to think about it? I'm going to say no, because these companies are still profiting off of the users one way or another. As YouTube and websites like that continue to get more and more of a monopoly, they can, uh, they no longer have to operate like ethically, so to speak. Mm. YouTube can continue to add more and more ads as it goes on. Google can continue to sell more and more of its customers' data. And as it gets more and more of a monopoly, you have less options of other places to go. The majority of the internet content, video content, is going to be on YouTube, and that looks like it's unlikely to change. I would say no. I think that you have to treat all monopolies like monopolies, even if the service is free to use. Hmm. So specifically, uh, Ajit Pai's logic on this is he thinks the best way to destroy an ISP monopoly is to lower the cost of entry. And I didn't realize this, but the actual cost of entry... Uh, to like set up an ISP, if you wanted to do that, in equipment, you would need roughly $25,000 of equipment. And that, that's, that, that's relative, a small one. very low cost entry. However, there is one key caveat, and that is in a lot of places like San Francisco or Birmingham, Alabama, startups are not allowed to use the existing infrastructure for internet. So in other countries like uh, South Korea or Japan, these utilities, these utility poles, the fiber optic networks that are being run, they, any company, any startup, any existing corporation, they can use these cables for their own ISP distribution and they can, of course, profit off of them. But in a lot of cities and a lot of states, the legislation prohibits that, uh, primarily due to lobbying by these big companies. While Ajit Pai thinks that we need to lower the cost of entry, he hasn't actually done anything to make this easier, but he does. Ultimately, it's part of his platform that he wants these smaller startups to be the competitor rather than breaking up these monopolies and like, you know, cutting, breaking charter into multiple companies like uh, people have suggested doing like trust busting. I guess my point is, what kind of solution do, do people want for the ISP problem? Because if you look at the numbers, certainly there is a problem. I mean, where I'm located, I have one option for an internet provider. You might be in the same situation. And we're not, I mean, Auburn is certainly not that rural. If this is a problem here, it's a problem that is much worse for a lot of other people. Uh, well, like I mentioned, Korea and Japan, they've been laying out these fiber optic networks. And these fiber optic networks that they're establishing, they have speeds of up to 10 gigabytes per second, which should be plenty for the near future. And these, these cable infrastructures are free for any ISP to use, any company to start using. And so that, by default, 
it means that that $25,000 cost to entry is really the only cost to entry for these ISBs instead of all the other fees that would be associated. If you were to try to lay your own network, that would be several million dollars. But if you lower that cost of entry as much as possible, it means that potentially we can have uh, many companies. I don't know about you, but it certainly seems inefficient for all of these companies to need to run their own fiber optic network. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can find a solution that works for both the people and the corporations. When we come back, wireless ISPs and rural internet. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so you talked a lot about cost to entry and uh, monopolies on internet service during your last segment. Now, you mentioned that we only have one provider here. Tell me about your internet speeds. What do you get? Oh, they're exceptional. Yeah, you, you get like dumb, dumb internet. Like 400, uh, 400 megabit per second. Yeah, that's that's stupid. I get 35. Now, it's included in my rent and I don't have to pay extra for it. But still... So imagine if I could pay for, or I could help pay for even faster internet at your house and then use it because I can't get it at mine. I'm listening. That's what we're talking about here. A big problem for the internet itself is that getting it anywhere requires a lot of infrastructure. And especially where people are very spread out, that becomes more expensive. Sometimes it's not even possible, depending on terrain or just like, in developing countries, you just can't get it out there because of conditions in the place that you're at. In a neighborhood setting, so think like a suburb where houses are 10 feet apart from each other, uh, the infrastructure is relatively cheap for ISPs. You know, you can run one fiber line and service an entire street with coax or phone cable running from that one drop. But if houses are miles apart, it becomes much more expensive because you have to run one of those dedicated long-distance lines to each house that you want to service. And a lot of ISPs won't even do it because they have no chance of making their money back and the people that live there can't even come close to affording that dedicated line. I want to talk about the two most common solutions to that problem for the people that live in these sorts of situations. Uh, typically, those solutions are either satellite internet or wireless ISPs. Satellite internet is uh, the closest thing to a traditional ISP that I'm going to talk about. Um, the biggest provider is a company called HughesNet. Have you ever heard of them before? Absolutely. I think my grandparents used them. Yeah. So they service around 1.3 million Americans, and they're by far the biggest player in the industry. Uh, they're currently owned by EchoStar, who are the creators of like Dish Network. They no longer operate that brand, though. They mainly focus on owning HughesNet, and they operate Dish in other countries like Mexico and places like that. HughesNet started out as Digital Communications Corporation in the 1970s. Um, in the 70s, or really in the 80s, they uh, came up with this innovation called VSAT, which is Very Small Aperture Terminal. That's a really fancy word for saying they figured out how to make really small satellite dishes. Um, at the time, these weren't to speak to things in space. They were for point-to-point -point links. So before we had uh, glass fiber, what telecom companies would do is they would set up on hilltops. They'd have two antennas pointing at each other to send calls back and forth. Because, you know, you physically can't run the wire sometime or it's a lot cheaper to do it with the uh, radio links. Uh, if you've ever been to downtown Birmingham and looked at the AT&T tower, uh, you know the gray part with the AT&T logo on it? If you look up close to the top, you see these like weird horn looking things and you don't know what they're for. That was part of the microwave backhaul system. Interesting. Yeah. They don't use it anymore, but it's still there. It was part of the infrastructure. Now, uh, Digital Communications Corp 
realized that you could sell this to private clients as well. So their first big customer was Walmart, who used it to connect their rural stores for things like uh, inventory and ordering items, stuff like that. They changed to Hughes Communications after being purchased by Hughes Aircraft in the 1980s, which is mainly a defense contractor. They did a lot of work with the government because, again, they were really, really good at making RF stuff. Their bigger innovation was in the 1990s when they realized that you could take the way that satellite TV was offered at the time, which was the big uh, five-foot dishes, the huge things that you see sometimes in like old neighborhoods, and applying their technology, they could shrink them down. And that was when uh, DirecTV started. So what they did was they launched uh, this constellation of satellites in geostationary orbit over the U.S., mainly for TV, but this is all digital communication. Over time, they realized they could start pushing internet to those at the same time, and they could make even more money. This is in the same time period when at-home internet access is becoming more and more common. For a long time, these were the only option for a, uh, for a rural client. You know, you couldn't get this you couldn't get it installed by a traditional ISP, so you were able to use satellite. Now, this was still very slow. You were bandwidth limited, and you still are bandwidth limited. But they were the first uh, company to apply satellite internet to actually doing broadband by FCC standards, which I think is 25 meg, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that didn't happen until 2012, and lots of people were still using them at that time because they were the only option that really worked well enough. You know, it's still better than no in internet, but it's, it's by no means a perfect solution. The other solution that I think is much cooler is called a wireless ISP. Is it faster than satellite? Yes, by a lot. It requires more infrastructure, but it is significantly faster. Or it can be. Wireless ISPs are cool because they can act like traditional ISPs, but they can also commonly act like co-ops and not-for-profits because of the way they're set up. So you talked a lot about cost to entry, and that's because in the U.S., like we said, there's not really such a thing as common carrier wires for people to use other ISPs. Um, WISPs get around that by setting up their own infrastructure for much less than ISPs can run wires. All you need to start a WISP is basically a group of people who can afford to buy a high bandwidth internet connection from a traditional ISP or from a backbone provider like AT&T or Verizon and then a high place to put antennas on. What WISP do is that they, uh, they create point-to-point Wi-Fi links. So not like you're going to see it show up on your phone, but you have an antenna on your house that can be aimed at a central spot like a high hilltop or a water tower or something, and that can create that, it can be a substitute for the wire, and the internet that it can deliver is not only faster, it's also cheaper and more reliable than satellite internet. So can theoretically any individual set up and add on to this network uh, once it's established? Absolutely. That's, that's the thing about it. They scale very quickly. So you're, you're limited somewhat by your input node and how much bandwidth you have at the start. But if you can have enough people be able to sign up, the price actually drops over time because the infrastructure is so cheap to add. You mentioned 25000 but uh, – Gear can be on the order of a couple thousand dollars for 10, 10 to 15 clients, depending on the distances, how flat your terrain is, what access to property you have. Sometimes you have to lease out uh, space on a radio tower, so that's not free. But if you've got somebody who lives on a high hilltop and is willing to have something attached to their house, then you can get that for much cheaper. 
I've seen multiple instances of people effectively starting these as a personal project, doing something like I proposed earlier where their friend can get like fiber to the cabinet or something, which means they can get a hundred gigabit or not hundred gigabit, like a, a gigabit line to their house and sharing the cost of it because they can share those speeds over a Wi-Fi link between their two houses. You can do that same thing just in any community and it doesn't require extra licensing. It doesn't require any of the upfront costs of running fiber. It's so much easier. Once you have that one link, you can add extras on and people do. Um, I think the two really interesting ones I saw were one where a guy lived on an island, I think up in New England somewhere, where he and his community couldn't get fast internet because the underground cable was very thin and it was basically DSL. And so he was able to, using the point-to-point -point microwave links like we talked about earlier, have a link to the mainland and then repeat that to the people on the island. And he was able to build this into a business, but that was still a not-for-profit. They were actually having enough money coming in and their infrastructure costs were so low that by law he was actually having to start giving money back to people because they literally couldn't spend it all on infrastructure upgrades. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw one in the UK where a person, their only option for uh, internet was dial-up like we talked about. And he lived at a point where he and his neighbors were getting like a meg or half a meg fast enough and he was able to get that fast connection. And he actually did a whole talk about it called starting a wireless ISP by accident because that's effectively what happened. He started one by accident. He and his friends got it and then his neighbors who helped him set the entire thing up also wanted in. So he was able to just add more and more. And that became his full-time job after a while. You know, there's this common, uh, I don't know if I can call it an ethos, but there's this common idea within the hacker community of liberating things like that and having internet for the people, man, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this is the biggest proponent of that. It is taking control out of the hands of a giant company who either can't or won't service your needs and being able to set it up yourself and do it on your own. And I think that's, I think that's a really cool solution to the problem. When we come back, the internet of things. Your best friends won't be your friends anymore. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so the internet of things. You either love it or you hate it, and you probably hate it. I am mixed. I'll be honest. I have some internet of things stuff, but I kind of hate how it works sometimes. Understandable. So when most people think of internet of things, they're thinking of their Alexas, their Google Assistants, different smart speakers, smart thermostats. My personal favorite, smart lights. Love smart lighting. But when do you think the first internet of things device was made? Internet of things or home automation? Internet That's of different. things. Okay, 2001? Lower. 2000? 1982. 1982? So... That was like ARPANET. We didn't have... What? You had these students at... You know how universities oh. got internet? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so some very interesting students at Carnegie Mellon, they modified a Coca-Cola machine and they turned it into the first Internet of Things device where it would ping a server that Coca-Cola had and it would inform them when they were out of, when, when the drink machine was empty. I, I have multiple questions. One, did Coca-Cola know or did they just start getting these requests on their network one day? I honestly don't know. There's not a ton of information about it, wow. but it is the first recorded IoT device. <laughs> Obviously, of course, Internet of Things was not 
super popular in 1982. It did not really take off until quite recently. I'd say like maybe 2014, 2015 is when you start seeing these devices flooding people's houses. And the biggest limiting factor there was simply just the size and the cost of the computing components. It wasn't that the internet infrastructure wasn't good enough or that not enough people had internet, but rather if you want to have a bunch of devices having embedded internet access, you need to find a way to do that so that it's cheap enough that these devices aren't costing a whole lot extra. Most smart speakers are actually cheaper than most regular Bluetooth speakers. So that's how they get people on board. So usually IoT devices, uh, they take the form of a device connecting to the internet either over Wi-Fi or maybe they're connecting to your network through Bluetooth. There's a protocol that's pretty much exclusively for IoT called Zigbee. Uh, and Zigbee communicates over a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi band. Zigbee is super cool because it's node-based, whereas most of the other IoT devices are communicating over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. So if you have 45 smart lights in your house because you're a billionaire, they're all going over Wi-Fi. That's going to absolutely tank your network. But if you're having it communicate over Zigbee, it doesn't because when the devices are communicating with each other, they're communicating with the parts inside the other light bulbs before it reaches your home network. So if you're turning on like one light bulb, or one IoT device with Zigbee at the same time as another one, instead of all of them connecting to your router, the first one connects to like the light bulb, for example, and then that light bulb then connects to the second light bulb, and it sends that signal that way. And this means it's expandable, it means it's much faster. Zigbee's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But in addition to like these regular home devices, you also have medical IoT as a field that's starting to take off. Certain things like blood pressure and heart rate can be monitored remotely with internet devices. Uh, I know a lot of pacemakers have IoT functionality now, which is as cool as it is terrifying. In my understanding, that, that stuff is generally less, okay, it's pinging out to the open internet all the time, and more so it connects to your phone, usually via Wi-Fi. You'd be surprised. Oh. Certainly varies from device to device, but we'll get into that. So in addition to medical IoT, there's a lot of use for IoT and, and for industrial purposes, simply just informing uh, people at a factory, like what devices are operational if there are issues that are starting to occur. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you also have farming IoT as something that's starting to take off. Rural IoT is some of my favorite things. Because I, I've talked to some uh, one specific individual who actually used IoT devices to automate a door to his chicken coop at night. So when he was, you know, away from the house, the, the door oh. would close so that the chickens were safe. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. Um, but IoT is also used for on farms to do things like collect uh, data about the farming conditions. And then, you know, you can send that off to a server and you can get optimal feedback back on how you can optimize your uh, your farming output. These the, the cool thing about these IoT devices, especially those uh, more marketed in like these rural communities, is it's not really industrial as much as it is for individuals. I, that's kind of the benefit of a lot of these IoT devices is they're really available for use in your home. You can do simple automation in your house when previously you would need to get some very expensive industrial solution to be able to do it. I've watched entire talks from like hacker conferences the detailed, the old, and usually insecure ways that you would get this done using like industrial SCADA gear and stuff like that. And it was insane the lengths that people would go to. So yeah, within be, because these devices are so accessible now and they're so robust, there's a lot of use inside your own house. Personally, I use IoT because uh, when my alarm goes off in the morning, I start my kettle boiling water, I, uh, I turn all my lights on so that it actually gets me up out of bed. Uh, I'm hoping to eventually add smart blinds so that the blinds open up and I let some sunlight in in the morning. Uh, 
because I'm lazy. Mm-hmm. There are, I mean, if you've worked with home automation or, or any of these IoT devices, you know that there's certain, I guess, logistical concerns because all of these things are proprietary. My, my problems with it have always come from dealing with, because I don't buy the extensive stuff, dealing with a third party who has to, I have to use, I have to use third party open internet services to control stuff that's exclusively on my network. Yeah. So like every time I, I, I have a Xiaomi smart bulb that has always given me trouble because I'm pretty sure it has to send my Wi-Fi, my password and SSID to a third party service that's probably on AWS or in China somewhere and then come back here in order to get it done. And it never works properly. Yeah, there's certainly, I, I've experienced with those kinds of products a lot of delay simply mm-hmm. because of how far it's sending the data. But there are there are more and more solutions that are coming out as you have the same kind of like hacker groups and all these independent groups working on these products. They're finding independent ways to interface with IoT devices to make it more convenient. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the service If This Then That, Yes. But it's it's a compatibility layer. Uh, it's a website, but it acts as a compatibility layer between a huge variety of IoT devices. They have specific negotiations with service big name services like Google's Google Assistant and programs like Spotify. Uh, I know if this then that even has integration with Domino's so that you can trigger a specific sound when you order a pizza. People are starting to develop platforms that enable the end user to customize more and more things with IoT, automate their home in the very peculiar way that they might want to. It's even like in non-home automation stuff, if this and that is a really useful tool. Like, for example, I'm a staff member at Weagle, and I've written a bot that listens to Weagle constantly and can text us when it goes down, which happens a lot when we have new DJs. And that is wholly relying on if this, then that in order to get texting working. Like it can save you a lot of time on writing complicated code if you can just write the thing that interfaces with it really easily. It's a super helpful compatibility layer for a ton of DIY projects, Mm -hmm. certainly. Another really cool thing that has been developed, uh, have you heard of Home Assistant? Yes. So Home Assistant is, uh, it's a similar style system that operates on a Raspberry Pi computer, a tiny little home computer that you can have on your network. And Home Assistant, it, it, it basically operates very similarly to something like If This Then That, but it's in completely local. So you know how you're having issues with your light bulbs, uh, they need to interface with a server potentially on mainland China and then come back to your house before it can turn your light on. That mm-hmm. can take some time. When you set up these integrated networks in your house with something like Home Assistant, anything from opening and closing the door on your chicken coop to uh, controlling your light can be done locally and therefore very quickly. Um, There are tons of uses for IoT devices, but there's a couple of critical, critical flaws. The biggest being security. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but security is an absolute disaster on the vast majority of IoT devices. Oh, I know. Because these devices have been rushed to market and mass-produced super quickly, tons of shortcuts have been taken, especially by these uh, smaller third-party producers. Specifically, some issues that have been exposed. I'm sure there are many that we still do not know about. Most fitness trackers, uh, as long as you're within Bluetooth range, you can read the data with them directly. There's no sort of security on them whatsoever. And a lot of that can be very personal and problematic if it gets into the wrong hands. Most IoT uh, padlocks, they can be unlocked by spoofing the MAC address of the key. So these locks work by having a uh, like a little NFC or Bluetooth key that you hold up, usually Bluetooth. And if you match the Bluetooth address of the key with another device, if you spoof it and you hold it up, then the padlock immediately unlocks a critical flaw of the system. 
Many IoT devices use one hard-coded password across all of their devices. So if you buy, uh, for example, one of uh, a, a padlock from a company, every other padlock manufactured has the same master password. And that can become a huge problem when people can connect to these things wirelessly. So it opens up the possibility for these large-scale uh, security risks. And, and keep in mind, for example, on the fitness tracker one, you may be thinking, oh, I don't really care if people know about my heart rate or things like that. These vulnerabilities generally aren't existing in isolation. There's a term in hacking called privilege escalation. And if you can have an endpoint, it becomes that much easier to find that as an endpoint to something else, to something else where you're getting into something much more sensitive. It's a potential endpoint to your smartphone, which is a much bigger deal than just your data on a smart device. Exactly. Uh, some of these devices, most of these devices never get security updates once they're rolled out. And some of the biggest issues you can have, uh, there have been examples of smart fridges, uh, smart refrigerators, which store your Gmail credentials or your email credentials in plain text. Oh my God. So that is a, it's the equivalent of having a Word document on your computer that's labeled password, do not click. That's the single worst thing you can do as either a user or a service provider. Absolutely. That's, that's the first thing they teach you in how to program for passwords. Yeah. You do not store anything in plain text ever. Very dangerous. So there's huge uh, large scale security risks. Botnets can be formed, a botnet meaning that you're having a, a specific program or a specific thing being operated on thousands of these hacked devices at once. Uh, botnets can be operated on hacked IoT devices, and this can potentially cause like quite literally large-scale destruction. Uh, a less harmful example would be you can have botnets running on, uh, there was an epidemic of botnet, botnets running on smart fridges where it would be mining for cryptocurrency. And so all that's going to do is increase your electricity bill. Certainly not that dangerous. But if you have something like a smart thermostat uh, and you have thousands of hacked smart thermostats across a city, if you max out the heat draw and the, the cooling on all of these thermostats at once, you can bring down a power grid. Mm -hmm. uh, you could literally have an entire city black out because these devices are often very insecure. And we wouldn't know about these risks until something happens. Right. These aren't conspiracy theories, by the way. There is a recent example uh, during Donald Trump's inauguration in Washington, D.C. At the time, 70% of the surveillance cameras in the city had been hacked. Uh, they were IoT devices. They had been hacked and ransomware was installed on all of them. That's very recent. And that's a that's a very pressing concern. Was there like, did that have something to do with the inauguration or was that? No. Just inconvenient timing. Huh. Yeah. So if you think, I mean, IoT is pretty cool, but there are obviously fundamental risks with these mass-produced technologies. So this may be obvious, but just make sure that you trust a device before you give it your Wi-Fi password or access to your email. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening to Are We Doing This Right? You can listen on Weagle 91.1 in Auburn every Sunday from 3 to 4 p.m. or on your smart speaker. Just say, listen to W-E-G-L. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Are We Doing This Right? I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. Thanks for listening.